All right. Genesis chapter 5, which we've been working on for a couple of weeks, and we're going to work on it again today. I originally thought we were going to do Genesis 5 in one Sunday, and now we're on the third one. <laughs> but such is life. But uh, the first week, we primarily all we got done was some introductory stuff. Uh, and then last week, we got more into the meat of the chapter uh, and uh, got about halfway through. And, and this week, we want to pick up where we left off there and, and see if we can't finish up <clears throat> chapter 5 so that uh, in a couple of weeks when we're back together, we can get started on chapter 6. And, <clears throat> and I handed out the study sheets for the first part of chapter 6 two or three weeks ago, so presumably you still have those. I don't... Uh, or there may be some up here on the table if you're still needing one. So, <clears throat> Or if you've lost it because of it's been so long <laughs> since you've got one. But at any rate. So... Uh, uh, as I said, we went over the first uh, first half or so of, of uh, chapter uh, five last week. So, kind of look down through that, and let's just kind of remember for a second some of the things that we talked about last week. What do you remember that we talked about last week? And there's only a few of you here today, so you're all going to have to pitch in. <laughs> okay. Okay. Talked about God as our patriarch. Pardon? Patriarch. Yes, the patriarch. Uh huh. It's a it's a concept we don't think much about in America. Many cultures around the world, it's still a big issue to them. Um, we don't think about it as much. We use the term, but we use it pretty lightly here in in our culture. But but it was an important concept. Why was it so important in that day? Okay. Okay. Yeah, their whole their whole culture was structured around the patriarchal system. We call it a patriarchal culture or culture or patriarchal tribalism. Okay, and and that was just the culture, and that was the culture uh, through all the way through the Old Testament and into the New. And uh, although it evolved and changed some over the years, uh, it was still it was still the predominant culture, and so. Uh, we have to keep in mind as we go through Genesis and as we look at these passages, we have to keep in mind that the stories that are being related to us are coming out of that framework. They're coming out of that frame of reference. And as I mentioned last week, we'll be dealing with this a lot as we go through Genesis, this whole patriarchal system and how it worked and why people did things the way they did them had a lot to do with this whole culture that they lived in. And, and we'll begin to understand a little bit about how God addresses people in the context of their culture. So God uses this whole patriarchal culture that, they're, that they exist in and that they live in. He uses, he uses the culture in order to communicate to them uh, things about Himself, uh, even as He does in our own day. So uh, we'll be dealing with that all the way through the book of Genesis. Anything else that we talked about that stands out to you? 
Live in the same home, uh huh. Yeah. And actually, your culture, your Chinese culture, is much more is is much better in that regard of of thinking about the older generation and taking care of them. Yeah, and we we tend to forget our responsibilities on that. Yeah. In China, it's another problem because this woman, uh, the father, usually the, the parents should uh, uh, pay the like mortgage for the kids. Oh. Who has the bigger burden for the parents? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something we'll have to think about as we're going through the book of Genesis. Uh, we talked... Uh, oh, yes, Gary. Yeah. It was very telling. Yeah. And uh, consistent, I think, with uh, the incompressed genealogy yeah. that we're looking at. Yeah. Because it was so vital that there yeah. was a time that could be that. Yeah. Wouldn't it be something to be able to go talk to one of your ancestors that had fought in the Revolutionary War or, you know, fought in the Civil War or, you know, whatever? And they could do that. And one of the things some of us were talking about after class was was uh, and it's important for us to remember that is what that one of the things that gave you is that gave you a continuity of the history. You know, we often talk we often talk about the idea that that the history was passed down from generation to generation to generation, and it was okay. But what we have to remember is that with these generations, uh, there was so much overlap that there was there's a there's a great deal of protection over the over the story, that the story is preserved uh, the way it actually happened. Okay, So, for example, I think of uh, the example of that little parlor game or uh, party game we used to play when we were kids, you know, or young people called gossip, you know, where you'd all sit in a circle and the, and the first person would whisper something to the person sitting next to them. Uh, some of you are nodding your heads and some of you are looking at me like you've never heard of this before. <clears throat> but you'd go around the circle, uh, each person whispering to the next person around the circle, and then when you get to the end, the last person would say, would, would, would say out loud what they 
heard from the person who had just related to them, and then the first person would tell what it was they had actually said. And invariably, there was just absolutely no resemblance of similarity to what started and what finished because it went from, you know, through, you know, of course you're whispering and you don't hear very well. And oftentimes we think that's how the story of creation was passed down. But we have to remember that because there's so much overlap that we, as we saw last year between Adam and the succeeding generations that Adam would actually have been able to tell the story of creation to Lamech, seven generations removed. So, uh, so it just provides tremendous continuity for the, for the story of redemption down through those early years. Yes? Another thing about that overlap is not just Lamech, but other, other members of the family. So you've got that even many more witnesses. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a tremendously important thing to keep in mind uh, and, and, and gives us a different perspective, I think, on, these, on, on this redemptive history as we study it and as we look at it. Well, last week we got into the story of Enoch and I'd like to pick it up there. Uh, so let's start in verse 21. It says, Enoch lived 65 years. Well, let's back up to 18. Jared lived 100 years. 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God uh, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. And Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and he became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were uh, 777 years and he died. Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay? Well, we did talk last week uh, some about Enoch. We got into his story and we talked about how he walked with God. Uh, and then he was, uh, as Hebrews said, he was translated or he was, the uh, word I like to use is he was raptured. He was taken up into heaven uh, without seeing death. And we talked about last week how that was, uh, that he was, the, the reason he was translated was because of his faith. It wasn't because he was so righteous, but he, because he was a man of faith. I'm sure he was righteous. Uh, that comes out pretty clear in the text. But, uh, but the, the reason for his translation, of course, was his faith. And we talked a little bit about that phrase that he walked with God, and we talked about how that phrase is, is, uh, is uh, only used uh, two other times uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, it's used in reference to Noah in the next chapter, as we'll see, and then it's used in Malachi in reference to the Levitical priests. <clears throat> and we mentioned that, and I want to talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, <clears throat> And we talked also about the fact that uh, 
that the idea of walking with God uh, contrasts a little bit with the with the phrase to walk after the Lord or to walk before the Lord. Those two phrases have the connotation uh, in the context where in which they're used of of putting stress on a person's obedience to the Lord and following the Lord's will. Whereas this idea of walking with God uh, appears to emphasize more the idea of intimacy or closeness of fellowship with God. Okay, And so that appears to be the thing that's being stressed here with Enoch. That it says as he walked with God, the thing that's being stressed is that Enoch, because of his faith, because of his confidence in the promise of God, because of the things that he had been that he had learned from his father and his grandfather and his great great grandfather and etc 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 walked by faith and because he walked by faith he walked in an intimate relationship with the Lord. But there's something that that struck me as I was thinking about this thing about walking with God because oftentimes I think when we think about this concept of walking with God and we look around us and we look at other people and we look at how other people walk with God, I think it's very easy oftentimes to fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to other people and comparing our experiences to other people's experiences and comparing how God deals with us with how God deals with other people. And the thing that struck me as I thought about the three examples in the Old Testament that we just that I just mentioned where God uses the term walking with God, what strikes me as I think about those three examples is how absolutely remarkably different they are. Okay, So, for example, we take Enoch and he walked with God. What's the outstanding thing we think about when we think about this guy Enoch besides the fact that he walked with God? Okay, you think about the fact that he didn't die. Okay, that's that's a pretty big deal. You know, he didn't. That's a, you know, you hear Enoch. That's the first thing you think of. He didn't die. He just 365 years and he's gone. You know, I, after 365 years, I'd be ready to die. But you know, at any rate. Okay. So the next one that we run into, and we'll get into this in chapter six, is Noah, and it says he walked with God. Okay. When you think of Noah, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Okay, he's a righteous man, but what? The ark, the flood, you know, and he he escapes through this flood. Everybody else dies, and he escapes through the flood by the ark with his family. Okay, and that's the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, well, then the last, the final time the that phrase is used is in the book of Malachi. Okay, and there it's in re- it's used in reference to Levi and the sons of Levi, to the Levitical priests. Okay, and when you think of the Levitical priests, what do you think of? It comes to your mind. Okay, the law, but what else? What did they do? They made sacrifices. And, and in particular, when you think about the idea of the phrase walking with God having to do with intimacy with God, and you think about the idea of intimacy with God, and you think about the Levitical priests, what do you think about? Being intermediaries and having access to what? To the Holy of Holies. To the Holy Place and then ultimately to the Holy of Holies. Now what strikes me about that is that that we have three different people or groups of people to which this phrase, walking with God, 
refers, but their lives and their experiences are radically different. And and I think the lesson, one of the lessons that I draw from that is that this whole idea of intimacy with God involves a unique relationship and experience with God. That all of us have unique experiences with God and unique uh, ways that God deals in our lives and works in our lives and works through our lives in, in, in the lives of other people. And the trap that we often fall into is we want to be intimate with God. We want to walk with God. So we look at somebody else who walks with God and then we try to make our life like their life. And so when things happen in our life different than the way they happen in somebody else's life who we know walked with God, sometimes it's easy to wonder whether or not we're really walking with God. Now, obviously, there are some ways in which there would be similarity. And the most obvious way is everybody who walks with God walks by faith. <laughs> okay, That's the most important thing. And then, of course, there would be characteristics of righteousness and holiness. Those would be things that would be similar between one person, or, uh, one person and another person who walked with God. But when it comes down to what their life looks like and the kind of experiences they have and how God answers prayer in their lives and the kind of things that God does in their lives. What God does in your life if you're intimate with Him and what He does through your life and how He answers prayer and how He works and the, and, and the various experiences you have and the various uh, ways that your life unfolds is going to be different from the way someone else life, someone else's life unfolds who also walks with God and who is also intimate with God. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind because so oftentimes so oftentimes I want my life to look like somebody else's life who walked with God. You know, something that I just thought of while you were talking about that was the fact that all marriages don't look alike. You know, and we're, we're all, we all have the same kind of commitment to each other right. initially that have that fleshed out in each relationship. We can't compare our marriage to somebody else's because it's a totally different instance. Absolutely. Absolutely. <coughs> and, and, and the reason that is important is because oftentimes we can fall into the trap of trying to make our life look like somebody else's life instead of just simply walking by faith. And what strikes me about Enoch and about Abraham, or Enoch and Moses, excuse me, Noah, <laughs> Enoch and Noah and the and the and the Levites, is that they just walked by faith. And as they walked by faith, then their lives unfolded in the way that God wanted their lives to unfold for their time and for their place and for their people and for their purpose in history. And so it will be with us. So that's one of the things that strikes me about Enoch. There's something else that's interesting about Enoch. You remember in, in Jude, we referred to the passage in Jude last week in which Jude talks about Enoch and talks about him as a prophet. But the thing that Jude says there, I think it's in verses 14 and 15, somewhere there in, the, in that area in Jude. He refers to Enoch as being the seventh generation from Adam. Okay, 
Now that's interesting. You go, well, why is that interesting? Well, because there's another individual who is the seventh generation from Adam that we've already looked at. Okay, And that's back in chapter 4 when we were looking at the Cainite line. When we were looking at Cain's descendants, remember? And, and, and when we looked at the genealogy of Cain, starting with Adam through Cain, there at the end of chapter 4, and you get to the end of that genealogy and you encounter a guy by the name of Lamech. Now, tonight, today we're going to talk about another Lamech, okay, a different Lamech. But this is Cain's Lamech. Okay? And we talked about what his life was like. And he also is the seventh generation from Adam. So, if, if we assume that the people in Cain's line lived approximately the same lifespan that the ones in Seth's line lived, then it's logical to assume that this guy Lamech in Genesis chapter 4 lived approximately the same time as Enoch lived. Okay, because they're both seven generations removed, and you have, you know, if they live uh, that many hundreds of years, there had to have been some overlap. They live about the same time, and yet their lives are such a stark contrast. And it's interesting that the Lord focuses on those two guys as He records these two histories. He focuses on. Lamech in the seventh generation from Adam through Cain, and he focuses on Enoch. Notice all the way through the Sethite genealogy we've just gone through, he really doesn't stop and focus on anybody after Adam till he gets to Enoch. Okay, But he stops and he focuses on the seventh generation. Now, I read that and I also say, well, of course he focused on it. The guy didn't walk with God and he was not for God took him. Now, that's a pretty big story. But there may have been some other big stories that he doesn't focus on with these other guys. Okay? But he stops and he focuses on Enoch. And he stops and he focuses on Cain's Lamech. Why? Because they're in the seventh generation. And the significance is that that number seven represents the number of completion in Scripture. And so it's like what God is saying to us as He compares these two lines, the righteous line and the unrighteous line, is saying, look, the sum total of the unrighteous line is this. And he tells us about Lamech, who was arrogant and proud and boastful and violent. And the end of his life, the result of his life was death. And then he gives us Enoch, who stands at the seventh generation, the completion of the righteous line, so to speak. Okay? He stands at the seventh generation from Adam through Seth. And the end of his life, is what? Is life. He doesn't die. And it's like God is saying, here's the, here's the difference, folks. That the end result of the unrighteous line is violence and death. And the end, relight, end, end result of the righteous line is that you walk with God and you ultimately overcome the power of death. Okay. Now, I don't know why God decided with Enoch that he wasn't going to die. He was just going to take him to heaven. And then we have Enoch's uh, grandson, <laughs> Noah. Is that right? Enoch, uh, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Great-grandson. Uh, he has his great-grandson, Noah, and he walks with God, but he does die. Now, why does God decide to do things that way? Well, I, I don't know for sure. I actually have some theories about 
why Enoch didn't die and why Elijah didn't die, but we won't go into all that. Okay, that's for another story and it's total speculation. But, But for some reason, in God's mind, he had a different plan for Enoch than he had for Noah. But one of the things we see with Enoch is that stark contrast between the righteous line and the unrighteous line. And that is a contrast that God draws not only all the way through Genesis, but all the way through the Bible. God emphasizes that and He emphasizes that and He emphasizes that even until we get into the New Testament. And Paul says, Paul, Paul quoting from the Old Testament says, come out from among them and be separate and don't touch the unclean thing. Okay. And, and, and that's the... That's the characteristic of the righteous line. That it is distinct. That it's different than. And God expects you and I as members of the righteous line by faith to look different. To stand in contrast to the world. Now the world doesn't like that. When we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole thing with Lot, you know, we're going to see that. Now, you know, with all, with all the criticism we can have of Lot, and he deserves a lot of criticism, he is a guy who when push came to shove, stood for righteousness, and the unrighteous line hated him for it. They despised him for it. And we can expect that. And we expect that the unrighteous line will despise the righteous line because God said in the garden that there would always be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There will always be that enmity. Okay? Yes? It's a David mentioned in chapter 5, verse 28. Yes. Yes. Yeah, those are two different Lamechs. One is, one is an unrighteous, and as we'll see here in a minute, I'm just getting ready to go to this Lamech in chapter 5. He's really quite different. Uh, in his character, yes. So there are two different people. And they actually live... uh, The Lamech here in chapter uh, 5 is actually nine generations removed from Adam. Uh, The one in chapter 4 is seven generations removed from Adam. Yeah. Well, they have the same name. But that would be like saying Rick here and me are the same person because we have the same name. So... You have you have duplicate names all the way through cultures. In your culture, you have many people who have the same name, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in our culture, we have many people who have the same name. In our classroom here, we have people with the same name, but we have different people. But if we look at verse eighteen, chapter four, uh huh, it also talks about Nehushtan was the father of Lamech. Uh huh. And in chapter five, verse twenty-five. Uh huh. Methuselah. Yes. Those are two different names. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Those are two different those are two different names, two two entirely different Hebrew words. Yes. So Yeah. <laughs> it can be confusing and you run into that all the way through the Bible as you have uh, duplicate names all the way through the Bible. So it, it can be very confusing. Even among the disciples of Jesus, there were two guys with the same name. So it's very common, yeah. It's interesting how a lot of that enmity between the two, the righteous and the unrighteous one, it 
comes out of them thinking that we think we're better than they are. When actually that that's yeah. a deception saying because it's got nothing to do with the righteous might be better. That's right. To do with that's right. That's right. And anyone who's in the unrighteous line can join the righteous line at any moment the same way we did. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, let's think about this guy Lamech then. Uh, we don't really know much about him except... Uh, no, let's don't think about Lamech. Let's stop and back up for a minute. I want to talk a bit about Methuselah. I'm sorry. I got ahead of, I got ahead of myself there. Okay. So Enoch, we know he's a prophet, right? And uh, from Jude, we know he's a prophet. And uh, one of the things he does there after 65 years is what? He became the father of a son, okay? And he named him Methuselah. Now, as a prophet... He's wanting to communicate to his generation. And we know he preached about two things in general from Jude. He preached about the wickedness of the people and he preached about the coming judgment of God. Okay? Those are two things that Enoch preached about. And then he has this son, Methuselah. And what do we know about Methuselah? That name probably rings a bell, right? He lived, he lived the longest of anybody we know of. Okay, there may be others who live longer, but of recorded history, he lived longer. He lived how long? 969 years. That's right. 969 years. Okay. Now, how old was Methuselah when his grandson Noah was born? Do the math. How would you figure that out? Pardon? It's not on your sheet. Yeah, and yeah, now, well, uh, I don't know. Don't look at my sheet. Look in the text. <laughs> That's cheating if you look at the sheet. Look in the text. How would you figure? How old was he when his son was born? One hundred and eighty-seven. Okay. How old? And his son was Lamech, right? How old was Lamech when his son Noah was born? 182. This isn't in the text. How old was Noah when the flood came? Pardon? 600. What does that add up to? What do we learn about Methuselah? He died in the year of the flood. Now that raises two, that raises a question, doesn't it? We have to ask ourselves, did he die in the flood? Or did he die before the flood, but in the year of the flood? And I would suggest to you that he died before the flood. Okay? And the reason for that is because of his name. Remember... He's the son of a prophet, Enoch. And Enoch gives birth to Methuselah. Excuse me. Enoch becomes the father of Methuselah. There's a difference there. Uh, Enoch becomes the father of Methuselah. And as a prophet, he names him. He makes Methuselah a prophetic emblem. 
Now, we don't know exactly for sure what Methuselah's name meant, means, but there are two possibilities of what Methuselah's name means. And one of them means the dart or the, or the uh, arrow or the attack. What does that sound like to you? For a prophet who preaches about judgment, he names his son, possibly, the dart, the attack. And so, Methuselah becomes the, the emblem or the representation of what's coming. Now remember, this is nearly a millennia before the flood actually comes. A thousand years before the flood, Enoch is preaching about the judgment of God. And yet God still waits another thousand years. Now, the other possible meaning of the name of Methuselah, and it depends on, it all hangs on the entomology of the name. So what, what actually is the original source of the name? And that's the question. But the other possible meaning of the name is when he dies, it will come. Pretty awesome, isn't it? Here's a guy a thousand years before the flood comes prophesying about the wickedness of his generation and the, and the coming judgment of God. And he names his son as a prophetic representation of what is coming. So that all through the life of Methuselah, his life stands as a testimony to the world that God is going to judge sin. Now, he waits a long time to do it. A thousand years. He waits a long time to do it. But God is not slow concerning His promises as some count slowness. But He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And so, so even though Enoch knows what's coming and he names his son... Uh, in, either, in either way, uh, it's clear that Enoch has in his mind that there's some judgment coming and that his son, he names his son to represent that coming judgment. He believes there is a judgment coming. Well, so Lamech has, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Enoch has Methuselah as a son and then Methuselah has his son Lamech and then Lamech has Noah. And when Lamech gives birth... Uh, becomes the father of Noah, he names him Noah. Why? What does the name Noah mean? Comfort or rest. And so with, with Lamech, we see that, that somehow he sees in his son, Noah, that there is going to be comfort or there is going to be rest from what? What does he say? Rest from what? From the work that is a result of what? 
rising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. In other words, Lamech sees in his son Noah rest from the curse. Now, here's the paradox. Did we get rest from the curse in Noah? Did Noah ever have rest from the curse? He died, didn't he? And even after the flood, he had to go out there and farm. We know he was farming after the flood. He was out there working, you know, sweating by the sweat of his brow. And his sons did the same thing and their sons after them and their sons after them until we get down to you and me and we're still doing the same thing. Right? We're living by the sweat of our brow. Right? Was Lamech wrong to name his son Rest? No, he wasn't wrong. And the reason he wasn't wrong is because when, as we will learn as we get into the story of Noah, as Noah walked up that ramp into the ark, he carried in his loins the seed of the one who would crush the serpent's head. So Lamech is looking forward and he is seeing in his son Noah rest from the curse. And so we discover something we discover something about the faith of these old patriarchs. Remember what the promise was back in the garden? The promise back in the garden was that there would be a seed that would crush the head of the serpent. But now we know that somewhere along the line, maybe beginning with Adam right then, but somewhere along the line, by the time you get to Lamech, they have come to understand that the crushing of the serpent's head also means that for the rest of us there will be rest from the curse. So it's not just that the serpent will be crushed, but that you and I will be delivered from all the results and effects of the curse. And Lamech now understands that. Now, Lamech is making the mistake of what I call the mountain phenomena in prophecy. And the mountain phenomena in prophecy is when you're out in the mountains, and you guys are going to be encountering this next week, when you're out in the mountains and you're looking across the mountains and you look at two mountains in a distance, oftentimes they look to be either right together or even the same mountain. But when you decide you're going to walk to the top of the one that's in the background, you find out that's a serious mistake to make. <laughs> that there's a great deal of distance between them. Okay? But from this perspective, they look like they're right together. Okay? And that's how it looked oftentimes in the Old Testament as people looked forward and looked at the prophecies in the Old Testament is that events that really are separated by some considerable distance in time appear from a prophetic viewpoint to be quite close together. That's why the Jews in Jesus' time couldn't understand that the kingdom of God was not going to come immediately. They thought when the Messiah first came that the whole thing would be done and you know, it would be the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. And they thought all that was going to happen at once. That's why the disciples kept saying, Lord, is it now you're going to establish your kingdom? Because, because they were making that mistake. Okay? But it is not erroneous to believe that Christ is going to establish His kingdom. 
It was just they were mistaken in their timing. And I think that that's exactly what's going on with Lamech here. He is not mistaken to believe that in his son Noah there is rest. He's just mistaken to believe that it's going to happen with Noah because it's not. Okay, It's going to happen not through Noah but through Noah's descendants. And so we learn that no matter, no matter how we interpret prophecy and we'll struggle with prophecy and we'll struggle with the interpretation of prophecy and we will disagree about prophecy, but one thing is clear. We have the promise of the seed and we have promise of the rest. And on that we can't agree. Okay? Well, we're way out of time, so thanks for hanging with me.